Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. So, guys, we're getting into the thick of November. There's a lot going on out there, and yet still somehow we're talking about the uh, Best Popular Oscar, which really shows you how uh, all over the place Oscar talk seems to be these days. We're going to start by talking a little bit about the potential revival of that idea by the Academy president this week. Richard is in the middle of reviewing At Eternity's Gate, the Julian Schnabel film, so we'll talk about that briefly. Uh, Green Book, which we've talked about since Toronto, is uh, out limited this week, so we're going to kind of use that as an excuse to talk about the Best Supporting Actor and Actress campaigns uh, former Herschel Ali in that movie and other people. Uh, and then out this week finally is Widows, which we all saw at Toronto and I've been really excited to see it again since and to for other people I know to see it. So we'll talk about that movie and then share the interview that Mike did with the film's director, Steve McQueen, which is very exciting. But first, let's <laughs> let's talk about Black Panther again. It's been almost a year since we started talking about Black Panther in this podcast and yet it's uh, it's not really going away. Um, the president of the Academy, John Bailey, did a, uh, a panel discussion in Los Angeles this week and Variety reported on it and it's kind of uh, paraphrased what he actually said so I don't want to try to misquote him but he basically suggested that if something like Black Panther gets nominated alongside the likes of Roma or Cold War which he described as two very uncompromising black and white art films he said it will be interesting to see how that plays out it might give us a strong perspective on how to move forward and to me the only way to read that is him saying basically if Black Panther gets a Best Picture nomination then we won't have to do the popular Oscar do you guys read it that way too? Yeah, I mean, I think that what he was trying to do, and I think pretty cogently, was explain the reason for the popular Oscar. I mean, he said, he basically was like, you know, the the smaller artistic movies like uh, Shape of Water and Moonlight, they're not widely distributed. So audiences yeah. don't have a chance to see them. And so, you know, that's less a problem of how we view the quality of movies and more just about availability. And that, to me makes more sense. So I guess he's, what he's saying is like, if this voting body can see to it to nominate a big popular film on its merits this year, like Black Panther, then maybe these things are kind of blending together and we won't have to create something new. Although I will say, I'm looking at looking at the numbers. The Shape of Water was in over 2,000 theaters at the beginning of February last year, which is right around the time, like right after the nominations came out. So it's not as widely distributed as, say, Black Panther, but that might be something of a straw man that, you know, maybe they're they're out there, but just people aren't clamoring to go see them. I think, sorry, Shape of Water was the example set by the Variety article, maybe not by Littleton. So um, I should clarify that. Sure. But, um, but yeah, no, still, like, it's a Guillermo del Toro movie still. I mean, so it, it wasn't yeah. tiny. That isn't Pacific Rim. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like you're trying to do the Super Bowl of movies, and then you are bringing in teams that no one's ever heard of instead of the teams that everyone has a rooting interest in. That's the problem that they face in terms of ratings, in terms of ABC not being happy. They've got this long-term contract, you know, and they had really, really bad ratings last year, and so they have to figure out something that they can do. And I also do think that there's a little bit of this sort of defensiveness, too, in the era of Oscar So White and, and all the rest of it, where they want to give more opportunities for a film like that to get rewarded so that they're not in a situation where, because the membership may have made a kind of eccentric decision, they look like they're completely worthless and out of touch and maybe even worse than those things. So... For all of those reasons, I actually was one of the lone insane people who thought it wasn't the worst idea and why not mix it up. And, you know, there were two awards the very first year of the Oscars, <laughs> one that was sort of supposed to be more popular and one that was supposed to be artier. The, the more popular one became actual best picture. But I, I get the concern. On the one hand, I feel like they're fighting a losing battle trying to keep ratings from going down. It's just, you know, we're in an ever more fragmented media environment and you're not going to get 100 million people to tune into anything or whatever they were getting before, 70 million. Um, on the other hand, like, for that reason, they have to figure out ways to stay relevant and not just become a thing for people who are, like, sad that Filmstruck died. Right. Hmm. Like, I don't feel like... 
I mean, this is just me kind of guessing, but back in the day when there were 70 million people tuning in to watch the Oscars on a Monday night or whatever it was, I don't really think that those people were watching the art movies. I, and I yeah. don't think that the movies nominated necessarily were more popular. I mean, maybe they were to some extent, but like I mean, I think some it, years they were, some years they weren't. Just right. like they are now, I think it just well, it was just well, the only thing on. Yes, a, <laughs> yes. You know? But also to push the fragmenting. Think of all the ways that we fragmented. One is there were three networks, and it was on one of the three, and it was the only and the one other that two was were live. running reruns. Right. Secondly. There was really only one kind of celebrity, and that was Hollywood celebrity. And what's happened is as Hollywood actors have gotten more actual power and status, they've been able to be like, I'm not playing this insane celebrity game. And that has opened the door for other people who are like, great, I'll play it because I don't have anything else to offer. But if I do that, I can get rich and famous like the Kardashians of the world. So actually, celebrity has broken off from Hollywood actordom. And then thirdly... You know, as the different kinds of movies are now so much more tailored. So if you had like Superman, the original Superman, everybody watched that. Nowadays, it's like if there's a Marvel movie, you kind of have to be like a Marvel person or a, or a superhero. I mean, that's the biggest group of people. But still, there's a lot of people who are not going to see those movies. And there's certainly a lot of people not going to see some of the artier stuff. So to your point, I feel like they're overestimating how much they can solve by making sure that there are a couple big movies, but it's at least something that they have some measure, tiny measure of control over, I guess. It will be interesting if Black Panther does get a Best Picture nomination and the ratings are effectively the same. I think that's almost a more likely situation because uh, Black Panther has its fans, but who like why weren't they just rewatch Black Panther that night rather than than tune into the Oscars? But it does kind of feel like if I were an Academy voter, I'd be like, you can't tell me I have to put Black Panther as a Best Picture nominee or else you'll do this terrible idea. I mean, maybe they don't think it's a terrible idea, but it does feel like a weird putting your thumb on the scale as people prepare to get their Best Picture ballots in like a month. Yeah, and it's also like, you know, Black Panther getting nominated, I think it deserves a nomination. It was certainly, you know, one of the movies of the year. But, like, that one nomination is not going to change the schema of everything. It's not going to make the Academy any less biased against movies about people of color or directors of color. It's not going to make, you know, more people tune into the... It's, it, it's sort of like, it's funny to pin a lot of institutional change on one movie, Whereas, like, well, what if we look at this, like, five years out? Like, if in five years, you know, Black Panther is the only blockbustery movie to be nominated for Best Picture, despite some other worthy candidates, maybe then have a conversation. But, like, I mean, I guess we're still having the same conversation that started with The Dark Knight. But they addressed that by adding the more, you know, Yeah, nominees. but what happened was they just got ever more, right. more arty movies. They, right. weren't, they weren't getting big movies in those slots necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I've they seen... They got the Florida Project, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen this joke iterated many times. I probably said it on the podcast, but it's like, you know, someone just like doing a quote being like, you know, just imagining some guy who's just been like, well, I've been meaning to watch the Oscars, but they haven't nominated blank. So then they do, and all of a sudden this person's going to sit down for a four right. and a half an hour award show. <laughs> like, it's just like, that's never happening. Yeah, I mean, well, we've talked about this, right? We talked about it with Joe Reed when he was on, like, maybe just accept your niche existence. The problem is they've, you know, sold a contract until like 2038 that guarantees, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising every year. And to do that, you need to be a big, popular, mainstream thing. Yeah. 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 So in 10 years when their ABC contract runs out, then we can maybe uh, let the Academy relax and we relax and they just air on Hulu. And right? that's the end yeah, of it. That's just, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I would prefer that. In some, I mean, it would, it would kind of reduce the sense of occasion maybe, but like it would be, at least be unbothered by all these other sort of concerns that don't care about the movies that we care about, you know, or that they're your average Academy Awards fan the horse race has not seemed any less interesting over the years, even if the films have gotten smaller and more independent. In some ways, it's made it more interesting. So, like, I don't know. You know, maybe now I'm sounding like a Marvel or a DC fan. Like, I want this to be for the fans. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, also, is there anything sadder than somebody who's trying to be relevant and is not relevant? You know, maybe. I don't know. I don't think they should give up, but I feel like they should at least be concerned about the bad look that that can be if you do it wrong. Right. No, that's true. You know what's crazy is just that at this point we're talking about who's going to watch the Oscars and the Oscars as a show. We still don't know who's going to host it, which is weird. It feels really late not to know that. Like the year that they announced Eddie Murphy and then he and Brett Ratner got fired off of it. Like that all happened before Tower Heist came out in November. Like are we running out of time? 
Yeah, I mean, I thought that this, I mean, I'm assuming now they're just going to have Kimmel do it again, but, like, that would be three years in a row. That's kind of unprecedented recently, yeah. anyway. Although he's been fine at it. Like, I wouldn't mind yeah. him coming back, but last year it was such, like, a make good from the debacle of the ending of the 2017 year, so... It seems fine to let him go if he wants to Yeah, go. and I can't really think right now of a comedian of the moment, like, uh, who is, like, sort of loud this year, who, like, it would be fun to see host the show. I mean, if but, Tiffany Haddish hosted the Oscars, I would, well, yeah, that <laughs> I would, would absolutely that would tune in. Or, like, Hassan Minaj and, oh, yeah. you know, Michelle Wolf. You could have, like, the... Uh, <laughs> The Comedy Central. Hannah, Hannah, Ab- Hannah Gadsby could just be right. like, this is all stupid. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. After we talked last week about how this year's Oscars won't be as political, they bring in Michelle Wolf and Hassan Minhaj <laughs> and really <laughs> lean straight in. Uh, for all I know, by the time this episode comes out, they'll have announced the host. This tends to happen to us, so uh, watch this space. Um, okay, so Richard, you mentioned that you were in the middle of reviewing At Eternity's Gate, which uh, is out this week. It's by Julian Schnabel. It played at Venice. It had been to at least one fancy film festival earlier this year, so it's been around. And Willem Dafoe's performance seems to be the thing to watch from it. Um, how how is it? Well, yeah, it played at Venice, and, and Willem Dafoe won Best Actor uh, at at that festival, and then it was the closing night film at New York. Um, you know, Schnabel is not my cup of tea as a director necessarily. I I, I find a sort of aggressive artiness almost a little bit retro, and, and not in a good way, like a little bit dated. Um, but I mean, it's interesting in that I didn't really know much about. Van Gogh's actual life. I knew about the ear vaguely. I knew that he was, you know, something of a revolutionary of his day in terms of his technique and his approach to things. And that's all articulated well. I mean, it's really a movie about mental illness. And, and in that sense, it's very like, it's it's really uncomfortable, but in, in, a, in a way that it probably should be. One thing I do know about Vincent Van Gogh or did know going into the film was that he died when he was 37. And something I know about Willem Dafoe is that he's 63. (laughs) (laughs) And so having an actor who is a good quarter century older than the person was when they died, I think I'm, I'm arguing in the review, changes the film. I mean, it becomes a movie about a guy later in life sort of, you know, having a mental cataclysm and then, you know, shuffling off this mortal coil. And that's a story to tell for sure. But... It's not the story of a guy in his mid-30s who, or late-30s who was in some ways at the height of his creative career. Uh, if, if, even if he was somewhat unrecognized in his day, he was, he was making you know, uh, beautiful stuff and then sort of snatched out of life. That's a different story and one that's better articulated by a younger actor, I think. Oh, I just had a uh, thought, though. What if 62 today is equivalent to like 37 <laughs> then because the life expectancy was right. probably like 41. He was an old 37 is what right. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to know. I mean, then maybe that, that's true. <laughs> and anyway, everyone had like TB back then. Like, you right. know, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was dire. Um, you know, that's not to denigrate Willem Dafoe's performance. He's great. And you really feel all of these you know, you feel pity, you feel frustrated by him because he's, he's, you know, he'll sometimes violently act out uh, in, in one of his, I don't know what, if they're manias or what they are, but, you know, so he's great and I can see why he someone would give him an award for it, but, like, it's just a weird, alienating choice to have him play this person. And, you know, I was telling Mike before we recorded that Oscar Isaac is in it playing Paul Gauguin. And, and at one point, he, they're having some debate about the nature of art at the moment and they're talking, they're name-dropping Monet and all these other people. And, um... And Oscar Isaac turns to Willem Dafoe and says, you know, our generation is the one that has to change things. And it's like, you, you guys are a solid you know, <laughs> right. couple decades apart. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about, your mm-hmm. generation? Um, and so it just takes you out of it. And um, yeah. maybe there's some point there that Schnabel's trying to make, but I don't really know what that is if, if there is a deliberate thing happening there. Right. So we got really excited for Willem Dafoe last season, speaking of the Florida Project, and kind of it felt for a long time like he really could uh, win an Oscar finally, and it it didn't happen, And but it does feel like people are paying attention to Willem Dafoe in a way that maybe he was kind of getting brushed off by the Academy for great, great work in the past. Does that give you a sense that he could sneak into the Best Actor race? We've talked about how it's kind of Bradley Cooper and then everybody else, so it does seem like there's room. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think it's a matter of getting people to see it. You know, I yeah. think that Academy voters will be like, oh, I know who Julian Schnabel is. Maybe they've been to a party at Palazzo Chupi, his house in New York. In fact, <laughs> Peggy Siegel hosted a dinner at Schnabel's house this past weekend. Uh, after, How was it, after, Richard? Was it great? I, I, I didn't go, but uh, Matt's, <laughs> our friend of the podcast, Matt Singer, went and said it was pretty wild. He showed me some pictures of his house, of Schnabel's house. Um, you know, so maybe the Schnabel factor might help. The Van Gogh factor certainly will. And the Defoe thing. So those are three things that could get someone to put that movie on. But, like, it's hard going after that, after you press play. 
And speaking of pressing play, I don't even know what the screener situation is because apparently all these studios are going green this year. Like I've received up like a quarter of what I normally have by this time of the year uh, and maybe won't get any more. So I don't know what they're thinking on that front, but I think that this movie in whatever format it's watched, unless you drag someone to the theater, has a, has a steep hill to climb. Well, Richard, I have an enormous hardbound copy of the first man screenplay. If you want to like, just take that to balance out the paper that you don't have on your desk, because oh. there's there's a lot in it. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Surely this has nothing to do with the environment. If they're saying it does, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So I'm not really sure if there's any connective tissue between At Eternity's Gate and Green Book, so we may as well just talk about another movie that's out this week. Green Book, which we talked about, it won the Audience Award at Toronto. It's out on 25 screens this weekend. I think we talked about last week how it's kind of an ideal Thanksgiving release. It's something you can imagine going to see with your whole family. We've talked about it a bunch. Do you guys have any lingering last thoughts on Green Book that you want to share for people who might be considering seeing it? Just that I, you know, my sister who lives out in L.A. and works for Film Independent, you know, is, is trying to, like, get her ducks in a row and see a bunch of stuff before, you know, the year's out. And she was asking me, should I see that? And I, I basically found myself actually, like, selling her on the movie because I was like, <laughs> yeah. for what it is, it's really well done, you know, but it kept qualifying it for what it is. But so I've weirdly been, like, advocating for the movie because I think that people will have fun, though I don't know if a movie about Jim Crow South should be fun. Have we talked about the Vigo Oh, right. Snafu. Oh, yeah. Do you want to sum that up, Mike? Well, so he was at one of these endless, eternal, you know, Q&As, I guess. He was right? at Julian Schnabel's house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was being interviewed by Elvis Mitchell, actually. And he said, I, I don't know exactly what the point was, but it was definitely, I think, in my understanding, is it was an anti-racist point. But he was doing, it was sounded like what that Netflix head of publicity kind of did where you're saying, for instance, you know, you would be really appalled if somebody said N-word, except you don't say N-word, and everybody's like, dude, you can't do that. <laughs> you just said it. You can't right. just say it, even if you're saying you're not saying it. And, you know, then the Netflix publicist, not to conflate these two cases, ended up saying it again in another meeting, explaining himself and got fired. I think Vigo knows, you know, that's the last time he'll ever say that in any context, including one where he's trying to make a point about how, what a horrible word it is. And he had a, a, I think, very well seemed to me uh, written and crafted apology where he really said, I can't even begin to imagine the pain that this causes people when they hear this word. And I know that in any context, just, you know, basically like white people shouldn't say this word. And Mahershala also then was compelled to release a statement where he said, you know, I know Vigo. He's a great guy. He should not have said this. He doesn't, you know, there is a lot of pain around this. No one should ever say it. So... They certainly, you know, addressed it and and were very proactive about it. And and I feel like it was, you know, hopefully, I guess for the for the film's sake and for Vigo's sake and and everybody's sake, like it's over because they addressed it well. But not great for a movie that already has people kind of like worried that it has some sort of problematic issues. Well, yeah, I mean, it's. I think that the, it's interesting that in the context of when he said the word, he was basically saying no one says that anymore. Right. And it's like, well, yes, they do, you know, but right. maybe, yeah. you know, yes. like they absolutely do. 
And I think that that's something that gets gets to the problem of the movie is that like, you know, this is one of those tidy, by the end, the white guy has seen the error of his ways and invites the black guy into his home for Christmas or whatever. And you're like, well, racism is solved, or at least this particular guy's racism is is solved and bridges have been divided. But I think as another best picture hopeful black Klansman shows like, no, like things didn't change. Like Charlottesville still happened. You know, this is all still very present, very current. And... You know, I, I, it's just interesting that an errant statement by one of the film's stars sort of gets at a much broader problem potentially with the movie in, in Green Book. Um, so I don't know. I, I'll be curious to hear what, you know, the sort of quote unquote masses think of the movie. I wonder, though, also if people who would really like interestingly grapple with the movie will even bother to see it. Right. Mm. You know, well, presumably. You know, mainstream audiences are going to be much happier with this message than with the Black Klansman message. The assumption that we all have is people want to feel, pat themselves on the back and be like, great, see how we're all so much better than people used to be and racism is fixed, which is frankly, you know, underlying a lot of what Trump's even message is, right? Right. And it's and it's it's left to people on the left to be kind of annoying and be like, no, it's not fixed. And much more than people on the left, it's people of color being like, I'm dealing with this every day. Stop saying it's fixed. And so I hope that people who are our listeners um, are open to that because I don't I think you can get accused of being like negative and being annoying it's like it's not negative it's just let's be real you know and it's, it's fine to tell a story that's inspirational it's fine to tell people um that an individual can change but just don't get ahead of yourself and start patting yourself on the back like the, the, these are big issues that are ongoing so yeah. anyway yeah, yeah. I saw Green Book with a friend of mine who's deeply involved in uh, social justice and other issues like that. And I think the thing that she took the most objection to wasn't even necessarily the the patting on the back stuff. But toward the end of the movie, uh, you've seen them stopped by cops in the Jim Crow South and kind of how dangerous that is for a black man in a car and with obvious echoes of today. And then they get stopped by a cop uh, on their way back to New York and New Jersey. And he's just like the friendliest, like nicest northern man. And the idea of basically being like, oh, well, southern cops are the problem. Northern cops are great. And that was the part where my friend was like, oh, come on. Like, is that really the, the pat solution we're going to come up with? So similar to the to the racism thing with a slightly different angle on modern issues. And I should clarify, when I said that people still say that word, I, I was saying that white people still pejoratively use that word towards black people in this country, either whether maybe it's not said out loud in public spaces as much as it used to be, but it is certainly said in private or in some public spaces and absolutely online, which is, you know, basically the public square now. So mm-hmm. so I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'll be very curious to see how the dialogue around that movie's politics unfolds. But also, you know, in our in our more cynical purposes, we have awards to talk about. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, we should, uh, Vigo kind of got all the headlines so far, but we should probably talk about Mahershala Ali as we get into a supporting actor conversation since he has been kind of rallied around as this uh, supporting actor front runner. It's a category he won two years ago, obviously, for Moonlight. I think Richard and I, we agree that he is pretty great in Green Book, but I just can't grasp why someone who won two years ago in a field with a lot of first-time nominees and potential first-time winners would be a runaway favorite here. Right, because the person who's been pointed to and we've talked about in the past is like, well, Christoph Waltz won for basically the same performance, you know, a couple years apart. But the second time he won, it was all, everyone nominated in that category had already won before, which is like, that's yeah. rare that that happens. And this year, that's not going to be the case. Um, it's looking like, so I could see it. I could see it, you know, um, well, he's great in the movie. Ali is great in the movie. It's the more understated performance compared to Morton's, which is big and, you know, bada-bing kind of stuff. I could see it for that reason. I think, you know, there obviously are concerns about the diversity of nominees and winners. And, and, and this is uh, another year where, you know, we could get another all-white, you know, quadrant of, four, you know, lineup of four winners. And, and that would be, you know, bad for a variety of reasons. But I, I don't know. I still feel like someone like Sam Elliott has... The momentum, although I don't know, has Stars Born kind of where where is Stars Born right now? This is what I brought um, up last week. I don't know. <laughs> I got very excited when I saw the Lady Gaga variety cover. That um, right, you know. So I mean, I'm still enthusiastic. I guess Katie, she delivered what do you think? pizza to uh, fire survivors over the weekend. And she showed up. She came to some event in some like really stripped down like basic dress. That like the idea that she's kind of like meta reproducing the plot of the movie on the red carpet, uh, which is a place where everyone pays attention to her. I think she's still being really active in that. Um, I want to look at how much money it made last weekend since that's still it it made uh, eight million dollars over the weekend, which is the first time it's made less than ten 
since it opened. It's a huge hit. Like, I think if we're still talking about Black Panther, obviously a much bigger hit, that has to account for so much of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think that the, the financial success certainly helps, you know, because I think that the movie has to be, you know, its odds have to be long enough that like it gets, you know, picture and Cooper and Gaga, but like, can it get all the way down to supporting actor? I think it still can. Mm-hmm. I think especially because um, this is not some person that no one's ever heard of or whatever. This is, you know, Sam Elliott who's been around forever and people love and he's always, you know, such an, a, a fun part of whatever he's in. So I, I still feel like Sam Elliott's the front runner, but you know, then again, this summer I was saying Timothy Chalamet was the front runner. I don't think he's no maybe even going to get nominated. So I think um, I not to Tom Friedman this too much, but an actual human being in the <laughs> wild told me that they saw A Star Is Born and they liked everything except the subplot with the brother. And whenever oh, no. that was happening, they were like, "Get back to I just want to see Bradley and Gaga." So I don't know. I have a feeling that Sam Elliott might recede. That that the that the the star wave might not be enough to get Sam across the finish mm. line. Mm-hmm. And and also again, not to overanalyze these things, but that is kind of what we do here. If Green Book is popular and people do like it, but it is also weighted with this sort of problematic issue, the very best way to reward it is to give the Oscar to Mahershala Ali. Yes. Yeah. No one can argue with that. Mahershala right. Ali is exempt from whatever is racially problematic inherently, I think, uh, with the film. And so that becomes like the the way to reward Green Book. Right. While also patting yourself for being a good liberal. It's yeah. all about patting yourself on the back, you know, at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, we're mm-hmm. going to start hearing really soon from critics. Um, I know, Richard, your group, the New York Film Critics Circle, votes really early right after Thanksgiving. Um uh, without giving away anything, like, would you predict what you think critics, either yours or the National Board Review or the Los Angeles Film Critics, like, what do you think they're going to go for I in mean, supporting actor? I have no idea. It's such a weird year. Okay, my guess for New York Film Critics Circle in particular would be, the big question would be, if Steven Yeun is running, if we're going to consider him leader supporting for Burning. Because oh. I would say Burning, uh, which is a Korean film, um, that was you know raved at Cannes has been raved at at other festivals since it you know just anecdotally from critics that I know and who I follow on Twitter and who I read it seems to be up there in a lot of people's you know top top whatevers of the year it's not really in mine necessarily but like I feel like he would be a big contender if the group decided to run run him as supporting um, but I don't know I I in that I I don't think that my guess would be that Sam Elliott or Mahersha Ali are not people who are going to be in the New York Film Critics Circle conversation. What about Richard E. Grant? Uh, Richard E. Grant, I think absolutely. I think that, Can You Ever Forgive Me, is a movie, a, another one kind of like Burning that just just from the critics I you know, follow has just not only stayed the course, but like only grown in people's estimation. So, so yeah, I think that Richard E. Grant, Stephen Young, if if, he, if we put him in supporting, like I think those are going to be the ones we're going to see more out of the critics groups, which you know, Willem Dafoe won last year. So, yeah, I also wonder about Michael B. Jordan. Uh, Black Panther is not something that needs like a critical boost for people to pay attention to it, but his nomination in particular does seem less likely than a Best Picture nomination. And I can see my, maybe not in the New York Film Critics Circle, but. The uh, Critics' Choice Awards, which I vote in, like I can see them really rallying behind Michael B. Jordan, and the fact that he has Creed two out, I hadn't really thought about that, but it makes him so visible right now, and remind of how likable he is. That could really work in his favor. Yeah, I mean, I hope that he he's still in the mix. Um, but yeah, it just I think that this category is representative of what a weird year it is, where I know there's good stuff, but I can't necessarily. <laughs> grasp it you know i can't literally pick yeah. out of the and i'm you know i'm you know we can change away from actually voting at the new york film critics circle mm-hmm. and i'm having a little bit of crisis like i don't really i think i'm a little bit more sorted in supporting actress but um okay well let's talk about know. supporting actress then like i think i would vote for elizabeth debicki and widows mm. Mm. that's where i would go um, I would be so thrilled for her to get a nomination for that or to win in, like win a, a critics award for that well it's an interesting thing because you think about role size and like increasingly not not in every instance, not in Sam Elliott or whoever else, but like Richard E. Grant, this is certainly true of. Like, in order to win in supporting, you kind of need to be the co-lead of a movie. Yeah. Well, and, Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone are a great example of that here. Right, exactly. Um, Rooney Mara and Carol. Um, well, she didn't win, but, but, you know, so I think that, like, Elizabeth Debicki is kind of the second lead of Widows. 
of the f- other women who aren't Viola Davis's character, she has the biggest role. She has the most moments that pop. You know, they're sort of funny, but also tragic. And, and she has a lot to play. The movie sort of ends with her and Viola Davis's character. So I just think that, like, the role seems oddly big enough to win supporting. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mike, do you have a particular favorite in supporting actress? It's funny. I still haven't seen Beale Street, so uh, it seems like Regina King has uh, a lot of momentum and and really could win. I loved uh, The Favorite, and I thought both of them were so great. I just assume that they're going to split the vote. Um, and They also I, both have Oscars already, which yeah. could work against well, them. Well, then there's that, too. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I need to see if Beale Street could talk, really, I feel like, before. I, I loved Elizabeth Debicki in, in Widows, but again, that's that is such a huge ensemble. It's like, who's your favorite widow? I there's, I have like three or four of them, I think. Um, and uh, and my, I'm, mine is Daniel Kaluuya. He doesn't count. Right. But, uh, he's my favorite. And then I'm curious to see uh, Vice and see how Amy Adams plays um, my old friend Lynn Cheney. Yeah, and Vice <laughs> could really mix up the supporting actor category too. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, Steve Sam Carell, Rockwell Sam, as W. Sam Rockwell as W feels like the slam dunk. Yep. Which is funny because he also won recently. Yeah. Um, but Katie, I also think that like Regina King for Beale Street, like I, I I think that that she's someone who could show up at New York Film Critics Circle. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that would I think make her a really solid front runner if she kept winning critics prizes. Right. Right. So I think that'll be interesting to see what, what precedent is set. But I feel like those. I feel like the the, the two from the favorite to Bicky, Regina King. Um, who am I forgetting? Amy Adams. Claire Amy Foy. Adams, Cl- Claire Foy. Oh, yeah, Claire Foy, Man. except I feel like First Man has sort of, I don't know. I always think that a movie's fallen off because I stopped caring about it. <laughs> but then it's like, no, actually. Make sure a true other, Oscar voter. Other people uh, pay attention to this stuff. The thing I keep telling myself about, and not done, not to compare them or the directors at all, but like, they're, you know, there's sort of American period pieces. Like, I keep thinking every time I think, oh, First Man's out of the race. It's like, Richard Hacksaw Ridge got so many nominations. Like, <laughs> yeah. you cannot assume that the Academy will not go for this sort of patriotic American um, boomer thing. Like, th- that's still very much in play. Well, and I'll say the good thing about Claire Foy in that role, the strength that she has is that because Ryan Gosling is playing Neil Armstrong as such a cipher, as such a sort of, like, clenched, frigid remote character interestingly but you're you're sort of searching him the whole time being like what is this guy thinking what's happening she's the one who you know goes into full flower to to run the household to take charge of their emotional lives and and the other aspects of their lives you know she's got that great scene where she forces him to talk to the kids and explain to them that you know he's about to go up into space and possibly never come back you know and and i think so i think that i like that role because it comes packaged as standard issue sort of wife waiting at home tending the home fires and it ends up expanding into a lot more than that i thought or at least a, a bit more than that and and she is just like she's just obviously really really great actress so i like that performance maybe more than i ultimately love the film as a whole although i didn't well, i, I like the film more than you did i think I look forward to uh, lonely voting for First Man in all of my uh, groups and top tens and any 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 power I can have. And everyone look at me like, why are you voting for First Man? Because I still think it's great. Um, and I think that's the strength of the movie in general, Mike, that you said. Like, it starts as a, what you feel like is a standard thing and kind of evolves beyond that. But... Not everyone necessarily agrees with me, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> a couple of the, so Margot Robbie is showing up on some people's list on Gold Derby. Uh, you guys have seen Mary Queen of Scots, but I don't know if you're allowed to actually talk about it. But she her PR has kind of started. She was on the cover of something recently. She, she got out recently talking about how she was felt ugly for the first time in her life playing the Queen Elizabeth, which is which is funny because she's so gorgeous. She's never <laughs> known what it's like to be ugly. I know what she's uh, referring to though, and I mean she's not. I mean they they really do. Uh, a number on her with the makeup and that. Oh, wait, didn't, didn't she already play ugly in the ice skating movie? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I mean, ugly the on point? the inside, maybe. <laughs> Tanya Harding is, uh, you know, no uh, bald Queen Elizabeth, I guess. Okay, fine. fine. Pox-ridden Queen Elizabeth. Yes, yes. So she didn't have a pox, Tanya. <laughs> Um, so to me, I feel like we've got actually three likely or almost lock nominees in here, unlike supporting actor, which feels more in flux. I feel like Regina King, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz are all pretty much getting in. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, I do think that there's a slight possibility with the favorite that we are overestimating its appeal to 
a bigger audience because it's like weird and we're sort of I think all of us to some degree are not on the lay at the most train but I'm sure there are plenty of people who aren't and the favorite is more accessible in that it's about like royals and there's costumes and you know it's movie stars like that's maybe a little bit more accessible than like the killing of a sacred deer though that had movie stars in it too but yeah if the movie plays in a broader sense as well as it did at festivals yeah I think they're for sure in yeah I really I share your concern about whether people on the west coast will like that movie I think it's east coast friendly and west coast maybe just like what (laughs) I look forward to the revival of this divide it's always a fun battle Uh, So before we share Mike's interview with Steve McQueen about Widows, uh, I'm so excited to see this movie again. I've been really excited hearing, like, talking to people I know who are seeing it for the first time and kind of coming away dazzled by it. Uh, I don't know if it's, like, setting up to be a big hit this weekend, but, like, doesn't this movie feel like it's got so much energy behind it compared to a lot of what else has been out there this year? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the funny thing is, you know, I really probably do myself in with with all these early fall festivals where I like I see a movie it's exciting and then months later I'm like oh right that and then so the, <laughs> the, the conversation about that movie has burbled up again because it's lo and behold actually coming out in theaters so people can see it and yeah I mean I think that the fever pitch for that movie has just like come back full force and people seem both I mean critics who are now weighing in seem really enamored of it and then people who haven't seen it yet seem really excited so I, I think that's fun yeah, and I think you you called it prestige popcorn in your review, which I think is a great way of looking at it. And it, it's cool to see Steve McQueen go into this mode after the incredibly, you know, serious uh, 12 Years a Slave and two incredibly dark films before that, Hunger and Shame, that were just totally exploring, you know, the, a, m- the, the, the destruction, basically, of, like, Michael Fassbender. <laughs> the human right? the soul. Mi- the Michael in, Fassbender in different ways. trilogy. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so this is, like, with lots of uh, complicated internal lives, uh, but sort of taking their destiny into their own hands, and it's one part taken and one part, I don't know, it's like, it's a, you know... It's a fun, crazy mishmash of stuff that also is extremely well done directorially, um, you know, in terms of the performances. So it was fun to talk to Mr. McQueen about this. Um, I didn't get yelled at at all once during the interview, which was, I couldn't <laughs> tell if it was He didn't give you the, the death glare applause like <laughs> he did at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't tell if I was hoping to get yelled at or hoping not to get yelled at. But no, he he was really uh, fun and forthright and, and fascinating to talk to. This is an incredibly brilliant, creative, talented man who has a fierce sense of, I think, artistic integrity and like doing what he wants to do um, because he believes in it. So it's, it's always fun and interesting to talk to somebody like that. Yeah, one thing I wanted to plug that I think you guys talked about is, uh, you know, this movie is fun and energetic and it's got some incredible twists that really make you want to see it in the theater. Uh, But it's also got a lot of the Steve McQueen, like, art touches. Like, he started out in the art world. His films kind of have this look that's like nothing else. And there's this one shot of Colin Farrell's character, who's a white politician, who's basically driving from an event in the poor black neighborhood that he represents and wants to be reelected into his mansion. Uh, And it's like a single take of a a camera mounted on the outside of his car. It's really spectacular. And you, you talked to him about getting that, right? Yes, yes. So stay tuned. You can hear his take on that uh, very brilliant scene. Well, there were some reactions at early festivals uh, for people saying like, I mean, it's so weird. The movie seemed so low budget, like he clearly just ADR'd this shot from outside the car because he couldn't get people that couldn't get shots of the people in the car, didn't have time to do reshoots or something. And it's like, no, 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 that shot is the whole point. (laughs) That's like the whole movie. Yeah. Well, there you go. (laughs) Let's hear your interview with Steve McQueen. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, no, no, no. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thrilled to be talking to you about Widows. It's such a fabulous uh, film. And I'm I'm fascinated by this original miniseries that it's based on, which I don't think a lot of Americans are familiar with. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and why it captured your imagination? Um, well, the miniseries was written by Linda Plant. It was televised April 1983. Um, and it's just one of those things where I think people weren't expecting a show at that time about four women uh, who sort of mastermind a, a criminal activity. And for 35 years later, it's still the same. Um, so, again, this, 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 it was just one of those things which sort of grabbed me as, as a 13-year-old. And as I said before, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I was being looked upon with the exact similar gaze as these women were being looked upon, not being being capable and being only judged by their appearance. 
Um, and I had an immediate sort of uh, connection to those characters. And just to follow them through their escapades uh, was just... Uh, it, just grabbed, it, just, it just took me, because you were rooting for them from day one, these, these underdogs. And, I mean, it was one of those times where, you know... Well, we, I think that time we only had four, if, I think three channels. We only had three channels at that point, ITV, BBC One, BBC Two. And so, you know, the streets would be sort of, uh, people would be running home on, on, you know, or, or jumping on the bus to get home to sort of watch the next episode. It was one of, one of those situations. It was a big popular show. It wasn't like a, an obscure thing. It, it overtook Coronation Street, which is our biggest soap opera, uh, the biggest rating show at the time. It took over in the ratings. Beat Coronation Street. Even I know that that's a big deal. That's that's kind of amazing. It's kind of funny how these things sort of come and go so quickly. A lot of people don't remember it, but it just stuck with me, I remember. And did you always know that you wanted to make a film about it, or, or did it come to you more recently? No, no, no. I knew, I knew. I mean, I, I, I wasn't 13 years old with a massive cigar in my mouth thinking. But um, I, it just stayed with me. A lot of shows come and go, of course. This wasn't necessarily obviously in other people's psyche, but it, was, it just stayed in mine. Somehow it sort of was saying a lot about me without, but without it being about me. What about taking it to Chicago? What, what drew you to Chicago as a setting for it? I've been going to Chicago for 22 years. The first time I went to Chicago was with my girlfriend, now wife, and I was doing a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. That actually was my first solo exhibition show. Okay. My wife was going to the Democratic Convention, which was Bill Clinton's uh, convention in, in 1996 in Chicago. So <laughs> the funny thing is my, my first footprint in Chicago was all about art and politics from day one. And what I wanted yeah. to do was just to take this fiction, because it was, it's just a loose... I mean, Widows of 83 is very different to Widows of, of uh, 2018, because what I've done is taking the nucleus of it, you know, these women husbands die in attempted heist and they take up the reins to do the job. That was it. Everything else, all the politics, all the political stuff is not in the current widows. And the reason being is I wanted to place that narrative into a heightened contemporary city. And that for me was Chicago. And all of the subjects that I wanted to cover, race, uh, economics, uh, the political, policing, even, even religion, whatever that is, all of those sort of, and, 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 and more. And obviously, there's way more gender, obviously, and all of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you ever have the question, like, how the hell am I going to pack all that into a heist movie, or, or were you confident from the beginning? The narrative is so beautiful in the sense of the way, because for me, there's so many things going on, but at the same time, it all, they're all linked, they're all connected. You know, all these, all these things crisscross and, and uh, sort of intertwined. And it's you know, how people even speak to people. Again, the, the faith, the whole idea of faith and uh, politics and corruption is kind of, you know, it's all intertwined. What I love about Chicago, Chicago's catchphrase is, I got a guy. Even before <laughs> Al Capone and all of that, and, you know, and sort of the prohibition and so forth, it's always been about, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Well, and Colin Farrell really represents that, right? I mean, a, a lot, you've talked about this amazing scene where Colin Farrell's in the back of the car, and there's so much going on there. It's a single take as he travels from a poor neighborhood to a rich neighborhood. He's got a black driver who he doesn't realize is listening to him say a bunch of stupid crap. Or he realizes and doesn't care. Is that right? Okay. Where's the driver going to go? Where's he going to go to, and, and, and to, to get paid? Who's going right. to pay him what, what he's being paid? This is our every day. Yeah. Obviously, you have a, a career, a very successful career as an artist. It seems to me like that scene almost could be an art piece in and of itself. It's got so many ideas packed into it, and it's so elegantly and kind of unexpectedly put together. I mean, do you ever think about a, a, a scene or a sequence as more of an art production than a film, or, or is there not even a distinction? Yeah, the avant-garde always trickles down to, to, to the everyday. That's what yeah. it's about. I mean, the avant-garde art, whatever you want to call it. It's all like Duchamp and, and trickling down to the every day. That's what it's about. You know, an idea is an idea. I mean, for me, as an English, a British filmmaker, I try to stretch a pound or now stretch a dollar. What's, you know, what's the most economical way uh, to do a scene at the same time as maybe tell three or four things at the same time? The audiences are so kind of, we're, we're, we're already sophisticated. We can follow things in, in that way. In fact, we like it because they're stimulated. We are, we're kept on our toes. And therefore, if we're rewarded, that's when you've got the audience. They trust the filmmaker. They, they feel that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in safe hands and I, I, I will follow him or her. The thing about it also is the shot is, is, is not about just looking at the shot. It's actually telling you something more than 
actually what's just just going on. So I think that's when it but that's when it becomes um, something which is sort of um, effective and practical. You've got such a great cast in this film. How do you approach casting? Like, what, what do you have a process? Do you do the same thing for everybody? Do you have a different approach for different kinds of roles? I mean, obviously, a lead is going to be different from a, a supporting. Yeah, well, I've got a great casting director, which is for Francine Maisler. And a lot of the people, I mean, for example, I, I, I sort of hired um, Daniel before Get Out, which is great because then the Get Out came out, so wonderful. Elizabeth Becky, I didn't really, I met her at some red carpets, an event which I didn't want to be at, but I was there. So I was sort of introduced to her by someone, and I didn't think anything of it. And then someone told me that she was in a, a Jean Genet play called The Maze, was a, and I really love Jean Genet, so I thought, mm, and she was fantastic. So I said, okay, let, let, let me audition her. So that was great. Michelle Riguez, I just, that's something about Michelle I like very much. She's got something, I always thought so. I mean, of course, there was a girl fight movie that was very, very early on, 15 years ago. Yeah. I wanted her, and then she said no, and then she said, you know, you know the story about that. Yeah. Viola was a situation where I talked to a couple of other people about the role, and, and I spoke to Aviola, and that was it. I thought, okay, yes, that's the lady. So it's having conversations with, with, with people in general, had ideas with other people in general, and then she, that was the person I wanted uh, at the end of the day. Viola has been talking a lot about that opening scene as kind of like a revolutionary act. And is, is that how you approached it? That, that you know, an interracial, very sensual kiss, no makeup, no kind of hair done in any kind of unnatural ways. Did you, did you guys talk about that? No, not at all. Two people in love. I said, you know, come on, guys, get, get, get your tongues out and get, and, and get going. <laughs> And that was it. I think they enjoyed it. They, they enjoyed it to, to, to work together very much, Liam. And I think, you know, what for me is exciting very much is, is, is two middle-aged people who are passionately, passionately in love. I mean, you hardly ever yeah. get to see that. At all, usually, you know, we're so, we're so sort of uh, fixated on youth. One does, one does forget that actually there are other people who are sort of have, have a, a sexual appetite. You've launched the careers of several actors. I mean, Lupita Nyong'o obviously launched in a humongous way out of 12 Years a Slave from someone that, that people hadn't heard of to someone who won the Oscar. Um, and, and do you think about that? I'm going to launch somebody. I mean, Cynthia Erivo uh, in this film, Brian Tyree Henry, you see a whole new side of him. Is that something you think about and, and, and feel a responsibility for? No. I mean, like, for example, Mike, the fact of the matter is that you give people the opportunity. I love giving people a chance for me, that's that's part of me wanting to sort of, I don't know, it's just I have I have the opportunity of giving someone a chance and they have to sort of take it. Similar to Nick Brutel, the, the composer, done anything before, 12 Years a Slave, and that, that was it. So you just sort of say, and I, you know, I, 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 I haven't heard him play a note. So, well, you know, okay, okay, let's give, let's give him a go, let's give him a chance. Why not? I think it's very important. You've got nothing to lose. Do you think you'll go back and work with Fassbender again? Are you guys cooking anything up? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that, 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 that will happen, of course. I mean, again, it's just one of those things where, you know, where everyone's trying to doing other things with the projects and so forth and whatnot. But yes, I, I, I very much hope so, yeah. What do you remember about the night that you won the Oscar for 12 Years a Slave? What's your what's your big memory of that night? Oh, to see my mother so happy and my sister happy. I mean, just, you know, again, these things are about sharing, I think. And I think, you know, seeing my mother bursting into tears... And then sort of being at this party, my mother sort of um, dancing, you know, battling Madonna on the floor, the dance floor. My sister is dressed being trod on by Leo. Um, you know, she's there, you know, it just, it's, and my mother, I mean, she's, she's, she was, she was like 70, 71, and she was dancing all night. It was just wonderful. Those are the things that I remember that you could share this stuff with other people. It's wonderful. That, that was great. That was one fantastic. My, my mother badly was on the, on the last one. That was that's incredible. And how does the film world compare to the art world? Is one kind of easier to navigate than the other? Is one more fun than the other? You know, with the, with the art world was, was so interesting. The art, art world is you know, the art, art is fantastic in, and, and 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 whatever. But sometimes I just feel it's being hijacked by rich people. It's unfortunate. I just feel sometimes that the commodities get so much entangled into the progress of the avant-garde. I mean, paintings. Yeah. Do you really think that Jack and Metty or, or Picasso or, or would be painting today with all right. the technology that, 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 that's at hand? No. What happens is when art becomes a commodity, it's, I mean, it's, it's what transport. It's like, it's like mobility, a sculpture, a painting. And that's why things like, say, art or, or other sorts of art aren't sort of 
aren't sort of in the marketplace because it, it's about these sort of old-fashioned forms. This is not to say that, that, that those forms are redundant. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, there's a hell of a lot more painting going on. And, you, know, you know what I mean? So I just feel that somehow the wealthy somehow has, well, hijacked, hijacked the art in some ways. Artists are meant to experiment. Artists are meant to explore. And, and they do. And they, I'm not saying that they don't. But this market is somehow sort of somehow reduces the meaning of the work. It, it becomes about something completely other. Um, and that sort of, um, I'm not happy. I'm not, you know, I don't like it. The environment, the actual environment is just not, is not for me. You have an art piece coming up. Did I read this correctly? You're doing a, a big project with kids in London. Is that right? Yes, 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 yes. We're photographing all seven-year-old children in London in school. That's amazing. That's a huge project. Yes, it's very, it's, it's massive. It's monumental, but uh, we're, 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 doing, we're doing our best to get through it, yeah. Well, I think that's a nice way to tie this up. You've got a fabulous populist film that's also a great work of art that millions of people can enjoy, and you're going to photograph every uh, kid in London. So you're and it's not for sale. So again, <laughs> it's one of those things where you know, for me, this is the thing where, well, the film world is the, the public that makes the decision if they want yeah. to see it. The broader, wider public. So it's not some sort of billionaire who sort of you know. Again, it's it's so it's just the whole idea of. I don't know, I can't get into it, but it, it's, it's a world we live in, and I, and I accept it, but I don't have to like it. Right. <laughs> I agree. I think you're making a great point. I think you're well, your assessment to, is it's right. It's similar to widows in a way. I, you, know, I have to, you know, I have to live in it, but I don't have to like it. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's all about these four women wading their way through the cesspool which we all live in, and how do, how do we sort of navigate ourselves through it in one way, shape, form, or, or, or the other, because that's how it is. One is left to their own devices at the end of the day. Spiritually, emotionally, you know, financially, whatever. Bloody healthcare for planet that. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate it. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Keep finding us on Apple Podcasts and other places to get podcasts. Tell your friends, leave reviews, all of those things. Uh, you can find us at VanityFair.com covering all of the things that we've talked about this week. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. Mike had to go, but he's Mike underscore Hogan. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best response to Richard's first man hot takes goes to Mike Hogan. Well, also, is there anything sadder than somebody who's trying to be relevant and is not relevant? You know, maybe, I don't know. 